The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Good morning. Good morning. Did you just love that? You are the love song we'll sing forever. That was so pretty. If you are joining us for the first time, or you haven't been with us for a while, you are joining us at the beginning of our new series from the book of Ecclesiastes entitled Life, Death, and Everything Else. We'll be traveling through Ecclesiastes for the next six weeks of this season of Lent leading up to Easter. So please pray with me before we start. Father, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we are not left alone to ourselves. But that you are here and that you love us. And you want to know us just as much as we want to know you, Father. And I pray, Lord, that you would remind us think about how wonderful you are to take time out to be grateful and thankful for what you've done for us Father I pray that you would be with us this morning and help us to enjoy your word in your name amen our intro this morning is this wouldn't it be nice To have a wise teacher to help you understand what is most important in life. This is what you find in the book of Ecclesiastes. In this sermon series, you will receive hard-hitting, uncensored, deeply thoughtful look at life, death, and everything else. The teacher takes us from the lowest despair to the firm foundation of a life built on God's commands. In 1992, I first learned about death. My grandfather passed away at 55 years of age. It was his first and only heart attack. I never attended his funeral because I was afraid as a eight-year-old boy that if I leaned over and looked in his casket that he would grab me in and then I would spend eternity with him. My mind was so wild back then. (laughs) I hadn't thought much about death before then, and it would probably be a while before I felt or thought through those kinds of things again, because the next instance of death that I can remember was when I was about about 14 years of age, when my best friend's mom died. She was only 44 years of age, and this had come only a year or two after her husband had died. And so my friend who was 13 didn't have parents anymore. She died of emphysema. My friend's mom was like a second mom to me. It was like one of those relationships where you ate at your house and then you'd go over there and she'd say, 
you want breakfast? And you would say, I had breakfast. And she goes, yeah, I know, but you got to have breakfast with us too. Or she would say, how's everything going over there? Because she lived right on the corner of us on a country road. So I decided, considering my closeness of my relationship with this woman and with her son and with their family, that I would go to say goodbye and to support my friend. Around that same time, I had two grandparents, great-grandparents, pass away. Um, one on each side of my family. And so I spent the better part of two weeks in funeral homes. And as I would approach death and saw it for the first time, I absolutely lost it. But I kept asking myself over and over again, what was the meaning of life and what happens after you die? And if anyone here knows me, you know I'm a verbal processor. So I was grabbing anyone and everyone within an arm's reach. What happens when you die? It could be somebody that I went to school with, like a student down the hall, or it could be a teacher or a librarian, my parents. And the answers were as diverse as the people I asked them to. You shut down like a computer. That one really bothered me. Reincarnation is likely. Thought that was kind of weird. My dad said, they throw a bunch of dirt over you. Who cares? And then there was a woman in the library who said, you're not going to know. You're going to be dead. So it doesn't really matter. This is New York, guys. It's a little harder there. <laughs> so none of those responses sat well with me. There were no satisfying answers to that question until my grandmother, who did not believe in God, said, oh, your aunt, she had a similar question about life and all of that stuff, but she's at peace now. You should talk to her. Call her. So I called my Aunt Pat, and as we talked for three days in a row, at length, she unveiled the mystery of Jesus and what Jesus had come to do for me. And honestly, at first I didn't believe it. But on that third day of talking, for whatever reason, everything she was saying sounded so good that I gave my life to Jesus, and I committed to following him. At this time in my life, I was looking for meaning in a world that seemed utterly dark and hopeless. Darkness, death, and the finality of life had a grip on me in the worst way because death was happening all around me and what was offered at every turn was more evidence that man had no answer in and of himself for death. And I think we're going to find ourselves in a similar spot in Ecclesiastes this morning. And while it's easy to see this book in a gloomy context, if you believe in God this morning, then you know that he has spoken and we are able to live in the light of his presence 
through Christ. We see the entire book as a whole. We're not left in the lurch. We can fast forward and go back as much as we want to see what is meant by what's being said. So let's read Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11 this morning in our Bibles. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already. Before our time, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. That's dark. So at the opening of the passage, we are brought to the teacher. It is presumed that the teacher is Solomon, and we see this because it says that the teacher is a son of David and a king of Jerusalem. The word teacher here refers to a person who would gather people together in an assembly to impart some form of wisdom. And with a greater portion of his life behind him, the teacher is imparting wisdom as to what he has observed in his experiences in life. And as we work our way through the passage, we come to the realization that the teacher, and we see this through the entire book, so as you follow along the next six weeks, or you're going to see that he has tried so many different things in his pursuit of life, meaning, happiness. Um, to find his own fulfillment and self-sufficiency while still coming up empty repeatedly. The myth of self-sufficiency that we often believe is that we don't really need anyone or anything besides ourselves and what we've been provided. And our culture promotes that. If you want it, reach out and get it. If you can think it, you can make it happen. If you want to go, just go. If you don't like it, get something better. That's what our culture does. And so we believe that the power is in us to change the things around us. So the big question I want you to have in your mind this morning is, in what area of your life is the myth of self-sufficiency most at work? 
And the big idea is that you are not sufficient. God is. Because he creates our meaning. Because he controls all the outcomes. And because he still stands in his glory far after we've gone. This morning I'm going to show you three myths that Solomon debunks in this passage. Solomon starts out with this first myth. The myth that we create meaning or our meaning. Solomon starts our passage by saying, everything is meaningless, right? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And that should be important to us because that's four times in two short verses that he says it. And the same word appears in this book 37 times. The word is translated from a Hebrew word Sometimes I saw it as Havel and the other Hebel. It was a V and a B. That was the difference in translation. Which means a wisp of vapor or puff of wind, a mere breath. So brief, brevity, short, not long, not of substance. It's like smoke, one translation said. You can't grab smoke and hold it. Smoke would disappear. It's nothing you can grab onto or hold. And it describes everything. And to other, understand this in context, we kind of got to know a little bit about Solomon. Because Solomon isn't like you and me who sit here after our 9 to 5 on a Sunday morning drinking our coffee. Solomon was a king who had great wealth and a huge fancy palace and an expansive kingdom and a never-ending succession of pleasure in life. But yet, he, that we would look at, and our culture would look at, and say, this guy's got it all together, this is the Tom Brady of kings, he looks back at what he has, and he says, Havel, it's meaningless. I have everything I could potentially want, and I have all the necessary things to afford a more comfortable experience, but it's meaningless. Solomon wasn't a stranger to pleasures or having the things he wanted. Solomon was also not a stranger to hard work, considering his expansive kingdom. He had people that were coming to see him, to see his kingdom. He had people that were coming to seek out his wisdom. So when he asks the question after the first couple verses, he's coming from a place of experience. And he says, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? And I think a lot of our world, you know, we'd, we'd probably see Solomon saying meaningless. And we would say, that's really hard to believe. You have such a great life. You have everything. And they might even cheer him on because of all the stuff he has. But remember, it's meaningless. Isn't it true that we often believe that our meaning is found in what we do and what we have? However, this stands in opposition to the truth that's found in God's word. 
The truth is that we do not create meaning in and of ourselves. It's God who has created and given his creation meaning. Look at Romans eleven thirty six. I love this. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. It all belongs to him. Job twelve ten, The life of every living thing is in his hand as well as the breath of all mankind. Acts 17, 28, For in him we live and move and have our being. Our meaning comes from our relation to him. God gives us our meaning. This cannot be found in and of ourselves. And this leads us to the second myth that I saw in the scripture. In the, in the passage this morning. And it's this myth that we can change the outcome. And, and that's kind of in this Ecclesiastes 1, 4 through 8. You know, as a society, we love the story of someone who's come up through a hard story and fought against the odds and changed the narratives. We, we applaud that. We push this idea, right? Like I said earlier, we want it, we get it. We are in control. We are in the power seat. Our destiny is ours. If you want to be happy, then be happy. It's a choice, after all. I was driving down Bay Street, and I saw this sign that said, pain is, <laughs> is inevitable, suffering is optional. And I was like, but suffering has its purpose too. You want that new career? Then go out and get it. It's what you do that truly matters. It's this idea that in some way you are like the difference maker in the world and that if you make these small consistent changes, it makes all the difference for the entire world. And what I find remarkable is what Solomon does is he makes a bunch of statements of how there is so much that is unchangeable in our world. And what it, made, what it made me think about was kind of like this idea of like, look around you at all the things that do not change. Right? You're not in control of all of that. I was reading in a book where it said, tell someone to go to the mountains and tell the mountains of your greatest accomplishments. And it said, the mountains don't care. They were there before you and they're going to be there long after you're gone. And I was just, because <gasps> I was like, I'm so little. I'm little. The things that I think I'm doing are so small in the reality of the life that we're a part of. So he starts with, he starts by saying, you know, like, everything in creation is just doing what it's always done. It sounds funny, but it's cyclic. And we see nowhere in the text that this exception is made. He starts with humanity, and then he moves into nature. You know, generations come, generations go. But the earth remains the same. The sun rises, it sets, and then it hides, and then it comes back out again. The wind blows south, and then it turns the course and blows north, then goes south, then blows north. All streams flow into the sea, and then eventually they go back. Night and day, think about that. It's another cyclic idea, right? It's one tiresome cycle, and we shouldn't expect it to be different. The eye is never satisfied in its seeing. The ear is never satisfied in its hearing. 
The cycle is never satisfied. It just keeps going. Even our greatest attempt to get the upper hand and put ourselves in a better position falls short because we're still going to end up in the same fate no matter what. We do a lot to preserve and prolong, but that does not stop the fact that generations will come and go. James 4.14 says, Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. It's this momentary life. The world would say, since it's short then, let's live it up. But I think Solomon also saw that while the world was steady and consistent, that God was the same. Look at Malachi 3.6. I, the Lord your God, do not change. Numbers 23.19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? We are not sufficient to change the outcomes of life. You can improve your life. You cannot stop the march of time. You cannot stop the eventual ending. In us doing that, that's, that's meaningless. So we are to see his sufficiency and find, find our our meaning, and our hope for that better outcome we're looking for in him. The third and the final is the myth that our glory is what matters most. And that's Ecclesiastes 1, Ecclesiastes, I almost said Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 1, 9 through 11. We are so concerned often with self. And I think when I first wrote it, I was like, that we would be remembered. Because um, it says, what is... Ben will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And oh, did it stop at one nine? Is there anything of which one can say, "Look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time." No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. And I was thinking about, like, just what we do, right, to be remembered. And it just kind of, like, morphed to this idea of, like, how we're so much more concerned with, like, self, you know. Because that's really what it is. We don't want to believe that we would be forgotten, We want to believe that what we do makes a difference, that someone's going to remember us, that we are important. But at the same time, we are so, like, attached to self. And I was thinking about this, and I was starting to pull up all these words that that came to mind, and it was like self-actualization, self-aware, self-care, selfies, self-motivated, self-preservation, self-taught. And these are all words that we, like, take a lot of positive in. And they're not all negative, right? But they're all inward, Not only do we love to focus on our interest in ourselves, but also what we can do for ourselves. And we're taught this at a young age. 
you know, when we were kids, we would go to our parents. We're like, hey, look what I did, you know, and our parents would be like, oh, that's amazing. You know, macaroni necklace that Lola gave Susanna the other night. And Susanna's just like, oh, yeah, beautiful, you know. My daughter probably thinks she's now K Jewelers consultant, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, and then your kid milks it, right? Because they're just so excited about the attention you gave them. And so then what they do is they make you another one. And they do it 20 times to see if the same response is the same response. Because we're just so happy with what we do and what we can do. It would take five minutes on any sort of social media platform to see the things that people are so proud of themselves for. Me included. I love to make food that looks gourmet and would give Chef Emeril a run for his money. But it doesn't end there because when we feel bad and things don't feel good, we do more of what makes us feel better. And Daniel and I talked a little bit about like this idea of like retail therapy, which I thought was really funny. And I was like, I'm kind of a victim of that, you know? Because when I'm feeling bad, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get a brand new hat. And I'm not going to get any hat, I'm going to spend the $105 for the exclusive hat. And when we get on that high that we're going to get on, it's usually when someone says, hey, I like your hat, that I'm going to say something like, oh, it's exclusive, because I want them to know how cool that hat is. And I'm cool because I wear it. Solomon had everything anyone could ever dream of. He experienced a lot of things that we will never be capable of. But he didn't think highly of any of it. Looking back, he said, there's nothing new under the sun. Not even my exclusive hat is new. It's new to me. But our culture's done it. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. No matter how cool, good, and great we attempt to make ourselves... In and of ourselves, we fall short, and we are always left hoping and longing for more. It's that repeated cycle that even time is going to forget. And while some may admire and say some nice things about us, no one will ever speak of us the way that the Bible speaks about God in Psalm 97, 1 through 6. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. That is the one true God. That is the sufficiency that we are longing for. The one who creates meaning, determines outcomes, and will be seen as glory and glorious. His glory is what matters and not ours. So remind yourself of that, is that itch comes to be glorious or, glor- or to glory in yourself. That there's one much greater whose glory is so much more important. So what do we do with this passage? And I think, you know, it's that jumping forward to look back. It's that Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. And as you end it, it says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. To fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty 
of all mankind. It's to fear God and to keep his commandments. Solomon saw everything as meaningless outside of fearing God and keeping his commands. And we know that there's stories where he fell short. But this is what this book says, that the truth the teacher is imparting to us, this is truth that is rooted in the fear of God and keeping his commands. And perhaps today, you're sitting here and you are convinced that at some point in your life or even now, you're living in this area where you're like, I am self-sufficient, I am controlling this. And there was something that was said or there's something in this, this passage that has made you feel that you've believed this myth of self-sufficiency and self-fulfillment. Um, the answer that you are looking for is the answer that I found back in 1999. It was God, our all-sufficient Father, who loved us so much that he sent Jesus Christ to this earth for our sins, and that if we believed in him, and we put our faith in him, that we would have everlasting life. That's the answer to the question that you are asking. And if that's you, and you want to talk about that, and what that might look like for you, then I would encourage you that when we have our prayer team back there, um, I believe it's the Bergs this morning, um, you just go over there and ask them about what I'm talking about, and they would be happy to tell you about that, about Jesus, that mystery that my aunt unveiled to me. And you could even come up and talk to me and I'd be happy to talk to you about it or any of the elders here at this church. Because we want you to have that hope and to share that hope with you. So in conclusion this morning, it is easy for us to fall into the myth of self-sufficiency and self-fulfillment. But these thoughts are at war with the truth of God's word. We will only find our hope, meaning, and purpose in God's sufficiency he has created meaning, determines the outcomes, and is about his glory. When we see those things and we place our trust there, our lives have meaning. So come back next week and follow along in our series, Life, Death, and Everything Else. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much that you are sufficient where we are not. We thank you that we can come to you we don't have to pretend. We can just come to you directly, God, and that you hear us, that you desire us to know you. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to come to you through Jesus. And we pray that we would think about you and what you've done on our behalf, God, this season as we head into Easter. We thank you. We praise you in your son's name. Amen. And so I wanted to invite you guys for communion this morning. So when Jesus, um, on the night he was betrayed, he was sitting with a group of his friends. And they took bread. And Jesus said, this is my body, which was broken for you. And he was talking about the sacrifice that he was making on the cross. And his body was going to be broken for those that would believe in him. And then he said, in the same way, he picked up the cup and he said, this is the juice, the blood of the new covenant that was made by the shedding of my blood. And that was the blood that he shed on the cross. And that as you partake in those two things, as you eat and as you drink, you're remembering him.
until he returns.